Hi there, listener. It's Matthew. You've come looking for an episode of the Children's Book Podcast, and you've found it. Hooray! But you're probably wondering why the name of the podcast has changed. After eight years of doing the Children's Book Podcast, I began a new career as head of podcasts at A Kid's Company About, where I now oversee a podcast network dedicated to producing original content that talks up to kids, centers the things going on in their world, and engages and challenges how they see the world and themselves. All of the episodes of the Children's Book Podcast are still here, but now, if you're subscribed, you'll get new episodes of Worth Noting, a kid's podcast about current events, hosted by me. Something for you and the young people in your life to enjoy together. Enjoy this episode, and I hope you'll check out Worth Noting and other podcasts from a kid's company about... This episode of the Children's Book Podcast is sponsored by 12 by 12. Picture book authors need to be fairly prolific to be published. That's why members of 12 by 12 aim to write one picture book draft a month. Through an online forum, monthly webinars, a private Facebook group, and more, members enjoy the accountability, support, and motivation of a fantastic community of authors and illustrators. Visit 12by12challenge.com slash membership for more information. Life happens. It does. You know, that's the thing. You know, when sometimes I know when, when people are, you know, like traumatized by a particular event. Um, one of the things my mother said, you know, yes, she was... Gosh, you know, when, when she lost her husband in, in the manner that she did, um, yes, she was traumatized, but she had to, you know, pick up the pieces and keep going because she had six babies to care for. Yes. You know, because life continues no matter what. Right? Right. It doesn't yeah. wait. It gives us pause, but it doesn't wait. It doesn't. It doesn't wait. This is the Children's Book Podcast, episode number 673. I'm your host, Matthew Winner. Today, I am beyond excited to bring you my interview with Ilyasa Shabazz, author of The Awakening of Malcolm X, written with Tiffany D. Jackson. Ryan Stevenson said, We are all more than the worst thing we've ever done. And yet, our criminal justice system might have us thinking otherwise. Ilyasa illuminates the humanity of inmates while also discovering the truth about who Malcolm is in this exceptional young adult novel. I myself listened to the audiobook adaptation and highly recommend it as well. There's so much in this book and in this conversation that the best way I think I can share is, as in many cases, for me to get out of the way and let the stories be heard. If you are not yet acquainted with Ilyasa Shabazz, I hope that this discussion serves that introduction well. Please welcome my guest, Ilyasa Shabazz, author of The Awakening of Malcolm X. I am Ilyasa Shabazz. I am, uh, let's see, she, her, hers. Um, I am an author. I have five books um, for young adult and children. I am a college professor and I am the chairperson at the Malcolm X and Betty Shabazz Memorial and Education Center. 
I am so glad you're joining me today. And as I said off recording, Ilyasa, I'm so glad to connect with you again, because this isn't the first time you've been on. But just, ah, can I just take a moment to tell you that the audiobook for The Awakening of Malcolm X moved me in such a way. It was exceptional. Your writing is wonderful. I've read all of your books at this point, and I, I love the authors you work with to bring these stories forward. I love your voice as an author. It's just great. So thank you, first and foremost, just for making time to talk to me. I really appreciate it. Oh, my gosh. It is such an honor. I am so excited. I am so excited to be on your show, Matthew. Um, I know I hadn't seen you in a few years, and we see <laughs> that life continues. And I'm not surprised that you are here doing this podcast because you are so phenomenal. And, you, you know, your energy... Um, it's just so right for our young people to be engaged, to be encouraged, to be inspired. So it's such an honor to be here with you today. So we let's get into first. Thank you. You're making me blush. And whenever I'm blushing, I want to move <laughs> straight on from the topic. <laughs> but um, why don't we talk about this book that uh, was written with Tiffany D. Jackson, another mm -hmm. like big, phenomenally amazing author. But 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 for those that haven't had a chance to read The Awakening of Malcolm X, why don't why don't you share a little book talk for what this story is? Well, first I want to say that I was such I was so um, happy when we had an opportunity to connect with Tiffany D. Jackson. Um, we looked at a, quite a few different people to collaborate with, you know, different really great novelists. Sure. And uh, with Tiffany. You know, what really won me over is that she comes from the film background. She also is a, a Howard graduate. Oh, she's she, a Howard she, graduate too, right? Yeah, yeah, she's a Howard graduate. So she has that great energy and, and insight. And she brings all of that to characters. And um, uh, But what really, really just said absolutely yes is she also comes from the film world. And so it was important to have someone who, who was also a visualist. And that's what Tiffany is. So I was just super excited to be working um, with her. Yes. And, yeah. And so this book is, is, you know, when I think about, gosh, you know, young people who find themselves in underserved areas and communities. And, you know, the only people they have to rely on are us, you know, the ones who aren't in underserved communities. And I think it was is Brian Stevenson, and I'm going to paraphrase who I just love so much. Brian Stevenson with the Equal Justice Initiative, who has um, gotten young people out of jail who might have been given life sentences at the age of eight, the age of 13. Um, and he says that we are more than the worst mistake we've ever made. And that, you know, as a society, that we will not be judged on how we treat the rich and the celebrated, but we will be judged on how we treat, and I'm paraphrasing, the underserved and the incarcerated, because, I mean, gosh, the only way they're going to um, uh, have opportunities is by those who are capable, right, to reach back and, and provide um, support. And, yes. and so this book, you know, allowed um, us to concentrate on the humanity of inmates, you know, and 
boy, I tell you, it was such a journey. And, and it's actually quite exciting also because what we discovered about Malcolm is that he was always smart, right? Or I should say, uh, you know, he had the capacity to be really smart because he read a lot and he always loved books. But what we discover in this book is while Malcolm was in um, the colony, that he was a star debater. And when he studied the dictionary, he didn't study the dictionary because he couldn't read and write. He studied the dictionary because he wanted to know the etymology, the root words, so that he could be his best and that there was no way he could lose. Because, you know, Malcolm believed in being completely prepared in whatever it was that he did. Yeah. The, yeah. the beautiful way that this book hops time you're sh you're sharing two stories at the same time of of malcolm incarcerated and not and as the book progresses those two timelines come together so beautifully in how one experience informs the the insider perspective of the other i found that to be really compelling um all of those just I was going to say all of those lessons, but no, all of the life lived and what to take from it in the time you're standing in now, I felt like was something that really was, was just really moving uh, in this book. Before we go further, though, I should, I feel like I should address Ilyasa, what connection do you have to Malcolm X? Why have you chosen to write about this man so much? Well, those might actually be two different answers, but um, for those... For those unaware, will you, would you mind sharing a little bit more about your connection? Okay. So um, Malcolm X is Malcolm X and Dr. Betty Shabazz had six daughters, not one. They had six daughters, and I am one of six daughters. And I'm right in the middle, number three. And then the youngest are twins. And, and so I've written children's books, and they're all award-winning books, so I'm really excited about that. Um, children's books and uh, young adult books. Um, and I think that, you know, well, first of all, um, he's quoted 53.7 thousand times per hour per day in social media. And I think that this is the clearest. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right, right. And I think this is the clearest evidence, Matt, that young people um, are yeah. discovering the truth about who Malcolm really is, you know, and they're looking for leaders who are wise and who speak truth. And we know truth is timeless. And I would imagine the reason why, you know, they're so attracted um, to his work. And, you know, he provides insight and strategies, tactics that young people can employ to meet the systemic challenges head on. I mean, just this summer alone, um, here we are, the entire world experiencing a pandemic. We're questioning our mortality. In the very beginning, we didn't know if we were going to live the, you know, through this thing or not. And, and then we're forced, unfortunately, to witness this, gosh, you know, this horrific thing that happened to George Floyd. Right. And, and, and what was so remarkable about it is that young people organized through social media, you know, this Black Lives Matter protests in 50 states in this country and 18 countries abroad. And, you know, the wonderful thing is that our young people, they're, they're ready. You know, they're intuitive. 
they're compassionate, and they're ready. And they demand um, equal justice across the board. And they have the capacity to recognize right from wrong, not black and white, but right from wrong and roll up their sleeves, um, willing to do the necessary work. And, and I think this is something that we saw this past summer and today and what my father said, you know, this young generation would do, that they would recognize that those in power have misused it and that they would demand change. And so this is just, you know, so wonderful um, about these young people, this young, beautiful generation today. I fully agree. And I can't help but look back to my own childhood when I see these children. And that this is what drew me to education is that, you know, you, you teach the future. You, you teach and you touch the future when you work in education because those kids are there. You know, I, I always go back to this quote by... Uh, Stephen Sondheim in one of his greatest known works, Into the Woods, uh, where he has a character sing, be careful the things you say, children will listen. Yes. And I think about when I, when I grew up, um, what I learned or knew of or, or how Malcolm X was painted in, mm. in Who Taught Me? And to put it bluntly for everyone listening, um, we, uh, and this is not in any way to slight other people, but we revered uh, Dr. Martin Luther King and, and his work and his speech. I have a dream. Like there was like the one pinpoint thing. Um, and Malcolm X, I remember, was um, the, the impression that I walked away from in my childhood was uh, disruptive, mm-hmm. um, um anti-white, mm-hmm. um, anti-police, anti. Maybe I can just leave the word anti. Um, and as I, too late in life, started questioning these things and thinking this is this is not right, this is not what justice looks like, it led me to um, much work by um, other anti-racist uh, educators and leaders, but it also perhaps most importantly led me to Malcolm's autobiography. Um, and, um, and I feel like I have continued to be on a path of truth seeking and justice since, and for the past, I don't know, 10 years, um, trying to, uh, correct my steps forward and walk with those walking forward as well. Mm-hmm. And the way, Eliasa, that you and Tiffany bring his story bring this story um to us in the awakening of malcolm x is just it's wonderful to to have the moment one of the i think strongest moments i took away in this was um was the power dynamic in prisons um but also that the way different structures are set up that that even from one prison to another, one place can look almost idyllic compared to the oppression of of another. They're all oppressive, but the oppression of another and um and see or have revealed, such as in the colony, that um there are still awful, awful things happening, dehumanizing things happening. Um 
I don't know if you can tell, but this is this is one of those books where I've dog-eared so many pages, I just <laughs> don't quite know where to go with well, this. But but if I, I'll, please do share, and then I do have a question I want to ask. Oh, okay. Because you mentioned, um, you know, Dr. King and Malcolm, and, you know, I think it's such a disservice to young people, because when we learn about Thomas Jefferson and George Washington, um, you know, we learn about the contributions that each made. But when we learn about um, W.E.B. Du Bois, yeah. Du Bois and uh, Booker T. Washington, it's choosing one over the other. And, and it's divisive. And, you know, Dr. King had a special relationship with my father. And though their philosophies in some ways varied, because the image of Dr. King is totally not accurate as the image of, of Malcolm X is inaccurate. But, but their respective moral principles enabled them to unite and work for the best interest of 22 million African Americans. You know, we forget the horrors of slavery. We forget the horrors of Jim Crow. And that this is the reason why there was a Harriet Tubman, a Frederick Douglass, you know, all of these activists working hard to free their people. You know, my father said, well, I won't talk, about, well, I won't go into that part, but, <laughs> um, you know, our society is, is um, moving forward. I think there's a, yeah. a multiracial movement that's driving our nation towards a more civilized space, right? A synthetic identity is being born. And it's the reason that we were able to have so many participants from every part of the rainbow of, of humanity, right? Our society is moving forward. Bigotry and all of its ugly hate is losing and a new era has yet to define itself. And so I think the lesson for our young people to take away is that cheaters lose, right? Lying, stealing, cheaters lose. Moral character wins. And I think that that's really, really uh, important. And so the work that Dr. King and my, and my father did you know, they were able to set out to strategically improve the quality of life for their people, all of which were embodied in the 1964 Civil Rights Act. And that was due to both Dr. King and Malcolm X. But the image of Malcolm X was horrifically um, um, uh, misappropriated because we know that Malcolm was holding a mirror up to America and he yes. provided the biggest critique of America, the yes. biggest critique of America. And I mean, I can go into the educational, you know, textbooks, but I'll wait because you might ask me a question about <laughs> that later. Ooh, I like this. I like when it feels like there's about 30 more podcasts in the one conversation. <laughs> <laughs> Let me lead my question with a quote from the book. This is um, near the end, but it won't spoil any sort of um, plot things, but, um, it reads, Malcolm says, something occurs to me that I've always known, but haven't fully processed. I'll never just be a man. Even outside these walls, I will always be a black man. My desire for equality is a burden and an insult in white eyes. Mm. So they lock us up, mute our voices, but what they have in body they cannot take in spirit. That's right. So Ilyasa, I would love, I mean, your whole, the whole book is just, 
It's poetic and beautiful. Really, truly, kudos to you and Tiffany. It's a gorgeous book. And I should say briefly before my question that I spent the summer, spent a week over the summer with Tiffany D. Jackson at uh, the Highlights uh, Writing Retreat Center and got to be a part of one of the workshops she was leading about plotting stories based on her experience in film. It was phenomenal. It unlocked a novel that I was currently working on. It unlocked it in such amazing ways that I will always credit her with unlocking that story. Mm-hmm. But where I want to ask you in this story is how much of this story is fictionalized? How much of it is just perhaps a narrative telling of history? Where where in this book did you have to guess at details and where is it retelling history? Well, most of it is um, historical. It's, yeah. it's a, you, you know, and um, I remember visiting with my aunt Hilda, that's my father's eldest uh, uh, sister, and just listening to all the stories about when they were children, you know, what my father was like, um, you know, one thing that's missing from Malcolm's story, which is why I started uh, many of his books as a child, or in the young adult books, he references back to his childhood. I think that it's important to understand that you don't go to jail and miraculously become Malcolm X, but that my father became a human rights strategist, um, globally renowned um, icon, because of the foundation that his parents provided, that his father um, was uh, a, a minister, a reverend, um, that he was also the chapter president of the Universal Negro Improvement Association, which in the 1920s commanded millions of followers, and that his wife, um, my father's mother, my grandmother, but they were very young at the time, were she was the uh, recording secretary for this organization. And so, you know, they instilled specific values in their children. And I, I thought it was really important to understand what those values were, right? Compassion, you know, for living creatures. My father had a butterfly collection, you know, that we grew up with, a mm-hmm. really beautiful collection, that he loved poetry, that he loved Shakespeare, that he loved books about Um, spirituality and religion that dealt specifically with appealing to humanity. And I I know that I put, um, that we put a list of his favorite books in in the um, back portion of The Awakening of Malcolm X. Um, So we were able to create this dialogue based on wanting to tell the story you know, of Malcolm's childhood, you know, why he was running, found himself running away from himself, you know, in his teens, um, which happens to many young people when you're questioning your identity, you don't know who you are. And for Malcolm, you know, living in the height of Jim Crow as a young black man, actually not even called a black man or an African-American, but as a Negro and, and not knowing, you know, who, what did that mean? you know, um, and being told that his life didn't matter when he told his favorite teacher that he wanted to be a lawyer because that's what he saw in his father, right? But he had, and his lawyer, I mean, his father said, I mean, I'm sorry, and his teacher said, well, you have to be realistic 
That's that's not a realistic goal for a Negro. And, you know, Malcolm didn't say, I want to be a firefighter. He didn't say, I want to be an, an actor. And nothing wrong with those careers or a doctor. He said, I want to be a lawyer. He was very specific. And he was the president of his class. And he had the best grades. And, and I think, you know, that was just so crushing. So when you find yourself at a crossroads, you can al- almost create that dialogue, right? That all of us, you know, we start questioning ourselves, you know, questioning our abilities, questioning our self-worth. And um, so the dialogue was easy. And, you know, with that and, and the historical parts and the research, I was so fortunate to have been on these, conver- on these calls with someone who was working on the film about the same time period, the colony, and someone who was a biographer in, J- in Japan. And we would have these weekly calls. And I'm telling you, that's how I knew that we were going to survive this um, pandemic, because how coincidental that it was that the three of us were working on the same time period of Malcolm's life. And, you know, to get all of this research, Malcolm was the star debater, you yeah. know, it, it, you just so much. It was just so much. It was so much. We, ha- we found a poem that he had written um, for a musician that is absolutely beautiful. I love the poem. Yes. Yeah. 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 <laughs> I, mm, the, the beauty also, it's one of those like, the way it's written in this book, or for me, the way it was performed in the audiobook, made me feel, made me think of of the the young readers that'll be reading this, the young adult readers, the young people, um, hearing debate. I'm sure many of them are aware of debate or already participating, but the way it was happening in this book, I was like, this is so enticing and beautiful and amazing. Um, and of course we know that what ends up happening is Malcolm gets questioned for you. You seem like you shouldn't be able to talk this eloquently or this, uh, versedly on these topics. It, it, as a reader, I think you almost get caught up in his gifts. Yes. And forget about, and I think that's the another beauty of walking through history in this way is that you have that moment of escape, and then you are reminded of of the reality of of the lens through which these things are happening. But um, this book is so full of hope and strength, and I just I was so moved by it. Do you want to share more about education? I know you, you brought it up a little bit there and we brought it up before. <laughs> right. I, I, we're, as we're closing out our time, I'd love, I think that's a really great place for us to, to land. Well, you know, listen, I think that, um, you know, I went into education. I'm at John Jay College of Criminal Justice. I think that we need educational books that teach every um, American child that black history is American history. And that American history is also Hispanic history, Native American history, and Asian history. You know, that there's no American history unless each and every voice is heard on the pages of those textbooks. And if the voluminous pogroms against the Aboriginal Americans, you know, against slavery, Jim Crow, 
1921 massacre in Wall Street in, in uh, Tulsa, Oklahoma, yes. and the 1923 massacre in Rosewood, Florida. If these things were taught in high school history classes, along with the Holocaust of the 1930s and the internment of Japanese Americans during World War II, then more people, more of our citizens would understand the need for the federal government to appoint a committee to explore financial remuneration and the psychosis of those who've been systematically targeted for extinction by his fellow man. And if students also learned in world history classes that Africa is the cradle of the most advanced thriving civilization ever to exist in mankind, right? As well as the impressive kingdoms of Futagello, Ghana, Mali, Egypt, to the same degree that we learn about ancient Greece and Rome, we would better appreciate the beauty and magnificence of non-white civilizations in Africa, Asia, and Latin America, and that we have an opportunity to teach our children love. And that is the most important. If we don't love who we are, how are we going to love others? Right. If we're taught how to hate others, then we're also teaching our young people how to hate themselves. And, and so we don't want to do that. And and so how do we as individuals react to this moment? What do we do to help bring about a more egalitarian policy and educate all Americans and all people as a start? Right. I think that we have to be self-reflective, acknowledge truth and be a accountable for the narrative. And, and, and so that is why I give kudos to authors. I give kudos, you know, to people like you. Um, kudos to the, the, the young readers, right? Because we want to learn and, and we understand that, you know, listen, there has been an injustice and the injustice is not done by governments, organizations. The governments and organizations comprise of people, of individuals. And so we have to not sit back and think that someone else is going to make these changes for us, but instead of complaining that we participate in the change. And that's why I tell you, I take my hats off to these young people um, who took to the streets to express their anger over systemic oppression and racial injustices towards black Americans. People, again, joined in the 50 states and 18 countries ab abroad. And so I would like to honor all of these young leaders who are actively driving change from Black Lives Matter um, to social justice champion of civil rights to food war warriors and, and our health care advocates. You know, you are the inspiration. And, 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 and I know, Matthew, that you feel the same way. We love you. And I know, Matthew, yes. this is why you do the work that you're doing. And it's the reason why I do the work I'm doing. I love myself. I'm grateful to my parents who instill these values in me so that I don't rely on others to determine my self-worth, but that, you know, I rely on myself. And with all the love that I have for myself, I have the same exact love to others because we're a reflection of one another. Yes. I I feel like I feel like it's time for me to give the opportunity for you to speak directly to those readers, Ilyasa. It was such a pleasure talking to you. I really could talk to you for another five hours, but we'll do it another time. <laughs> but um, let me uh, say it this way, that I will see a library full of children tomorrow morning. Many, many of us will be in front of children. Is there a message that we can bring to them from you? Oh my gosh. Well, listen, I believe that every child 
um, should know that they're worthy of self-love, worthy of a quality education so that they can ultimately participate in mainstream society if they so desire. And so I would say just know that you are worthy of excellence, that you are worthy of self-love and that you are worthy of a quality education. This is Becky Scharnhorst, author of My School Stinks. My School Stinks is a back-to-school picture book told through journal entries about a young boy who gets lost on his way to school and ends up in a classroom of real animals. His deskmate stinks, his locker buddy bites, and his teacher is unbearable. But Stuart soon learns that friends come in all shapes, sizes, and species. You can learn more about My School Stinks by visiting beckyscharnhorst.com. The Children's Book Podcast is recorded and produced by Matthew Winner in his library studio in Ellicott City, Maryland. You can subscribe to the podcast and access the archive of over 650 episodes at matthewcwinner.com. Our theme music is by Poddington Bear, care of the Free Music Archive. Want to help out the show? Become a patron at patreon.com slash matthewcwinner, and your support and contributions will directly support and impact his work here. And always, writing a review on iTunes or sharing the podcast with friends through Facebook, Twitter, word of mouth, or any other means helps reach more listeners, which leads to more content and more amazing guests. And that's a very good thing indeed. We know you value what you put in front of your kids, especially when it comes to screens and podcasts. That's why we're excited to share a new podcast from our friends at Sleepiest, creating bedtime stories to help your kids fall asleep fast. Hello, Abby here. If you've got children and find bedtimes a struggle, I'd like to tell you about Coco Sleep, a children's story podcast designed to make bedtime a dream. Coco Sleep turns a chaotic bedtime into cosy bonding time. The stories are delivered in a pace that gently slows. Rumour has it that no one's ever heard an ending. So search Coco Sleep on your favourite podcast app and let's make bedtime a dream. That's K-O-K-O Sleep and I'll see you there.